This podcast is part of the Bomb Pod Media Network. On November 22nd, 1912, Captain Schooneman, with a crew and passenger list of 16 and between 27,000 and 50,000 trees tied and bundled below decks, set sail from Manistique, Michigan, bound for Chicago. The skies were overcast and high winds were predicted, but the Rouse Simmons headed straight into the open waters of the lake. When a storm broke, the wooden ship was hopelessly trapped, far from shore. The ship foundered in the rough waters and eventually the sails blew out and the ice-covered masts collapsed. A short time later, the Rouse Simmons disappeared. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome to Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you are new here, please consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes and share a link to this podcast on your own social media to invite your friends and family to subscribe as well. Coming up in this episode… The Hotel del Coronado in San Diego is one of the most beautiful hotels in the world, and some say the most haunted. On November 19, 1924, Hollywood movie producer Thomas Eintz died after celebrating his 42nd birthday aboard a yacht belonging to infamous newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst, but to this day, the exact circumstances of his death remain a mystery. Could this be why his ghost still wanders the movie studio that he founded? On the night of November 20, 1901, a young North Carolina woman named Nell Cropsey vanished from her family's home in Elizabeth City. After a frantic search that lasted more than a month, Nell's body was discovered floating in a nearby river. She had been brutally murdered. But by who? On November 23, 1910, American-born homeopathic physician and salesman Dr. Crippen was hanged at Pentonville Prison in London for the murder of his wife, Cora. But was he really the murderer? While the holidays are usually a time of cheer and happiness, the people of Chicago learned of a Christmas-related tragedy on November 22, 1912 when the famed Christmas tree ship went down in a storm on Lake Michigan. The tragedy changed the face of the holidays for the people of Chicago in a very unexpected way. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. The Hotel del Coronado in San Diego is one of the most beautiful hotels in the world, but some say it is also the most haunted. The ghost story that has long been attached to the hotel is unique in that it is one of the only Thanksgiving ghost stories that is told. It involves a young woman named Kate Morgan, who checked into the hotel on Thanksgiving Day 1892 and never checked out. When the Hotel del Coronado opened in 1888, it was the largest resort hotel in the world. In the middle 1880s, the San Diego area was in the middle of a real estate boom. To draw people to the area, several wealthy businessmen went together and built the Hotel del Coronado. The popularity of the hotel was established before the 1920s. It had already hosted Presidents Harrison, McKinley, Taft, and Wilson, the hotel went on to host Presidents Franklin D. Roosevelt, Dwight D. Eisenhower, John F. Kennedy, Lyndon B. Johnson, Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Jimmy Carter, Ronald Reagan, George H. W. Bush, Bill Clinton, George Bush, and Barack Obama. By the 1920s, Hollywood's stars and starlets discovered that the Dell was the in-place to stay. Many celebrities made their way south to party during the era of Prohibition, 
and used the Hotel Dell as their personal playground. Tom Mix, Rudolph Valentino, Charlie Chaplin, and Ramon Navarro were a few of the many actors who stayed at the hotel during weekend getaways. Other notables have included Marilyn Monroe, Thomas Edison, L. Frank Baum, Vincent Price, Babe Ruth, and many others. During World War II, the hotel was used to house Navy pilots and the families of officers. By the end of the war, the neglected hotel had started to age, and while millions were spent to refurbish it, a new owner in 1963 planned to tear it down. But he changed his mind and remodeled and expanded it instead. It remains today as one of the most beautiful resorts on the West Coast, and one with several ghosts. The hotel's hauntings include the ghosts of a little boy and girl, a former hotel caretaker seen in the dining room, and a Victorian woman who has been seen dancing in the ballroom. But there are none as famous as the ghost of Kate Morgan. As mentioned, Kate checked into the hotel on Thanksgiving Day, 1892, and she has never left. Hotel guests and employees believe that most of the paranormal events that occur at the hotel can be connected to Kate. Witnesses report flickering lights, televisions that turn on and off by themselves, dramatic shifts in room temperatures, odd scents, unexplained voices, the sound of strange footsteps, mysterious breezes which cause curtains to billow when windows are closed, and objects which move of their own accord, and some claim to have seen the ghost of Kate Morgan herself. Kate Morgan, a pretty woman in her mid-twenties, checked in to the Hotel del Coronado alone on Thursday, November 24, 1892, Thanksgiving evening. During her stay, hotel employees, many of whom had frequent interactions with Kate, reported that she had appeared ill and very unhappy. She had also told quite a few employees that she was waiting for her brother, who she said was a doctor, to join her, but he never showed up. Five days after she checked in, Kate was found dead on an exterior staircase leading to the beach. She had a gunshot wound to her head, which the San Diego County coroner later determined was self-inflicted. A search of her hotel room revealed no personal belongings. In fact, there was nothing to identify the beautiful stranger except the name she used when she registered, Lottie A. Bernard from Detroit. After her death, police sent a sketch of Kate's face and information about her death to newspapers and police stations around the country in the hopes that someone could shed light on the dark mystery surrounding the suicide of the unknown girl at the Coronado Hotel. Eventually, Lottie Bernard was identified as Kate Morgan, originally from Iowa and the wife of Tom Morgan. Reportedly, Tom Morgan was a gambler who may have made his living gambling on the railroad. After the inquest into Kate's suicide, a gentleman came forward to say he had seen Kate arguing with a man, thought to have been Tom, on a train en route to San Diego. The witness said that Tom disembarked before reaching San Diego and Kate continued on to the Hotel del Coronado by herself, where, it is assumed, she waited for Tom to join her. When he never showed up, Kate took her own life. Since that time, paranormal activity has been reported in the room Kate stayed in during her 1892 visit, room 3327 and in other areas of the hotel as well. She is the most enduring ghost of the Grand Hotel and continues her hold on the place almost 125 years after her tragic death. On November 19, 1924, Hollywood movie producer Thomas Eintz died after celebrating his 42nd birthday aboard a yacht belonging to infamous newspaper publisher William Randolph Hearst, but to this day, the exact circumstances of his death remain a mystery. 
Could this be why his ghost still wanders the movie studio that he founded? Thomas Eintz was a pioneering member of the Hollywood elite. In 1918, he founded Culver Studios and was considered to be the father of the Western. He was also the man who introduced the world to Mary Pickford, crowning her America's sweetheart. Eintz rose from being a $15 per week actor to become the head of a studio and to this day still has a street named after him in Culver City, Eintz Boulevard. Almost a century later, Culver Studios remains one of Hollywood's most historic studios. It was the site of filming for Gone with the Wind, Citizen Kane, and other classics. Over the years, the film lot has been home to such names as RKO, Howard Hughes, and Desilu Studios. In addition to film classics, Culver Studios was also the birthplace to favorite television shows like The Andy Griffith Show, Lassie, Hogan's Heroes, and Batman. Previous owners of the studio have included Cecil B. DeMille and eccentric billionaire Howard Hughes. But Thomas Eintz had humble beginnings in the movie capital. In 1915, Eintz partnered with D.W. Griffith and Mark Sennett to create the Triangle Motion Picture Company in Culver City. Somewhere along the way, the deal went sour and Eintz sold out and entered into a lease with Harry Culver for a new 14-acre studio fronting on Washington Boulevard. It took two years to build the Thomas H. Eintz Studio, and in December 1918, a Los Angeles newspaper called it a motion picture plant that looks like a beautiful southern estate. Eintz, a visionary in the industry, promoted the glamour of movie-making and he entertained the King and Queen of Belgium and President Woodrow Wilson at the studios. The administration building became a well-known landmark and Eintz was rapidly expanding his successful facility. Unfortunately, it was not meant to last, and neither was Eintz's revered status. Sadly, Eintz is remembered much more today for his scandalous death than for his contribution to the art of movie-making. Eintz died in November 1924 while celebrating his birthday on board a yacht owned by newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. The real story of how Eintz died will probably never be known, but Hollywood rumors tell a strange and twisted tale. Eintz's mysterious death will forever be linked to Marion Davies and William Randolph Hearst, the greatest newspaper baron and one of the most powerful men in American history. By the 1920s, Hearst had also become a major film financier as well. He had first become interested in film through newsreels in 1911, but soon his hobby turned to a quest for profit. It was not long before his zeal for the movies was enhanced due to his passion for furthering the film career of sweet but untalented film actress Marion Davies, with whom Hearst had been carrying on a notorious affair. Hearst bought stock in MGM and created Cosmopolitan Productions, a company that specifically produced Marion's films. His newspapers and magazines proclaimed her to be a miracle of the movies, and he did everything he could to entrench her into the Hollywood film colony. Parties thrown at Marion's beach house were the most extravagant in town, and people grabbed at the chance of an invitation to a Hearst affair. In addition, being able to relax at Hearst's vast mansion in San Simeon, with millions of dollars worth of imported furnishings, tapestries, paintings, and 35 automobiles in the garage was a must for anyone lucky enough to get an invitation for the weekend. Marion also earned high marks as a hostess, even if privately the party attendees made fun at her attempts at acting on the screen. Another popular party spot was Hearst's 280-foot yacht, the Oneida. Invitations to the boat were even more highly coveted than those for the beach house parties. On the night of Saturday, November 15, 1924, the yacht left San Pedro Harbor for a weekend cruise to San Diego. The cream of Hollywood's charmed circle received invitations to a party on board the Oneida that weekend. There were a number of guests on board, but the only names that became available after the party were Hearst, Marion Davies, actress Cena Owen, and author Eleanor Glynn. 
that weekend marked the 43rd birthday of Thomas Eintz, who was in the midst of negotiations with Hearst concerning the use of his Culver City Studios as a base for Cosmopolitan Productions. It had been planned to throw Eintz a birthday party on board the yacht. Mrs. Eintz, who had also been invited, decided not to go along on the trip because she was not feeling well. Eintz, the guest of honor, missed the boat when it sailed from San Pedro because of his attendance at the premiere of The Mirage, his latest film. It is believed that he took the last train to San Diego, where he met the Oneida and joined the party for the return trip. The celebration on board was said to be a wonderful occasion. But then things got murky. In the early morning hours of the following Wednesday, Thomas Eintz died at his Benedict Canyon home. His death was attributed to heart failure. When the news reached the press, all sorts of ugly rumors began to circulate, as well as a hash of conflicting stories. Things became so heated that Chester Kempley, the district attorney in San Diego where the yacht had been anchored for the weekend, was forced to open an investigation. The principals were all strangely absent at the hearings that followed. Hearst could not be reached for a statement. Marion, Eleanor Glenn, and Sina Owen, the only names known for certain to have been on board, were not called by the DA to give testimony. The only person present at the hearing in San Diego was a doctor named Goodman, an employee of Hearst. His official version of events, which was printed in Hearst newspapers, stated that after eating and drinking too much at the party, Eintz died of acute indigestion. He was taken from the yacht and rushed home where he later died. After the hearing, the case was closed. Originally, D.A. Kempley had insisted that he planned to call every single person who had been on board the yacht to give their version of events, but not only did he not call any of them, he suddenly, after just the one session, called off all further inquiry altogether. He was satisfied that Eintz's death had been explained, but others were not, including a number of newspaper columnists and writers of the day who demanded that the authorities look into Eintz's suspicious death. One of the strangest facts about the cruise was that no accurate list of the guests on board the ship that weekend has ever been revealed. There were obviously many more people on board than has ever been reported. Several well-known personalities of the film world have been mentioned as Hearst's guests that weekend, but none of them ever publicly admitted to being on board the yacht. Of course, there were many rumors about who was there, just what actually occurred, and what really happened to cause the death of Thomas Eintz. Perhaps the most exciting rumor to make the rounds in Hollywood involved the presence of Eintz's friend, Charlie Chaplin, on board the Oneida for the party. Rumor had it, however, that Chaplin had not been invited just because he was Eintz's pal. Hearst was insanely jealous of other men's attention to Marion Davies, and his detectives had recently informed him that Marion and Chaplin had been seen together during a period of time when he was out of town. Hearst allegedly invited the comedic actor on board the yacht for the weekend cruise so that he could observe for himself how Chaplin and Marion behaved around one another. It is believed that Hearst saw Marion and Chaplin slip off together during the party and that he discovered them together on the lower deck. A loud altercation followed, and Hearst ran for his cabin to retrieve a diamond-studded revolver that he kept on board. Hearst was rumored to be an expert shot and often amused his guests on the boat by shooting down seagulls with a single bullet. In the confusion that followed, it was rumored a shot was fired, but it was Thomas Eintz and not Chaplin who ended up with a bullet in the head. Eintz's funeral was held on November 21st, attended by his family, Marion Davies, Chaplin, Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, and Harold Lloyd. Hearst was noticeably absent. The body was immediately cremated and an official inquest was never held. Despite the fact that the evidence was now in ashes, Hearst knew he could be in trouble with the Hollywood rumor mill. Everyone on board the Oneida was sworn to secrecy, and it wouldn't be wise to cross Hearst. But in spite of this, persistent rumors linked Hearst to Eintz's death. No one could resist talking about the way the hearings into Eintz's death had been called off, the lack of an official inquest, 
or the damning story that Charlie Chaplin's secretary had seen Eintz carried off the yacht bleeding from a bullet wound to the head. Some thought it no coincidence that famed gossip columnist Luella Parsons was awarded a lifetime contract with Hearst soon after the incident since it was rumored that she had seen everything that had happened. Luella also felt the need to do a little covering up of her own and insisted that she had been in New York at the time of Vince's death. The only problem with this story was that Vera Burnett, Marion's stand-in, clearly recalled seeing Luella with Marion and Davies at the studio, ready for departure on the yacht. Vera valued her job, though, and decided not to make a big deal out of it. Marion and Hearst managed to ride out the scandal unscathed, but as D.W. Griffith remarked in later years, all you have to do to make Hearst turn white as a ghost is mention Einz's name. There's plenty wrong there, but Hearst is too big to touch. It was widely known in Hollywood that if you ever wanted to attend another party at Marion's beach house or the San Simeon Castle, you didn't mention Einz's name any place where Hearst might hear you. In the years that followed, Hearst discreetly provided Einz's widow, Nell, with a trust fund that was later wiped out by the Depression. Broke and penniless, Nell finished out her days as a taxi driver. As for Hearst, the entire affair was eventually reduced to a sardonic joke in Hollywood as the Oneida became known as William Randolph's Hearst. Strangely, though, death did not bring an end to sightings of Thomas Eintz and his mysterious death also started rumors about Culver's studios being haunted. Eintz built the studios, but they changed hands several times after his death. Cecil B. DeMille, Howard Hughes, David Selznick, Desi Arnaz, and Lucille Ball made significant contributions to film and television history on this lot. The rumors of the haunting have persisted for years. Employees have reported ghostly figures roaming the lot at night, while others recount being frightened by the apparition of a woman who appears on the third floor from time to time. She always disappears quickly, leaving a cold spot of chilling wind behind. Most famous, however, are the sightings of Thomas Eintz himself. Witnesses have reported seeing the ghost of a man climbing the stairs in the main administration building, heading for the executive screening room. This had been Eintz's private projection room during his tenure at the studio. Remodeling seemed to bring out the worst in Eintz's ghost in 1988 when he began to reveal his displeasure over some major renovations. The first to encounter him were two workmen who looked up to see a man in an odd bowler-type hat watching them from the catwalks above stage 123. When they spoke to him, he frowned and then turned and walked into the second-floor wall. Later that summer, special effects man Eugene Hilchey spoke to another worker who had also seen a man wearing an odd hat, this time on stage 234. Hilchey was convinced the man's description matched that of Eintz. The worker's statement was enough to cement his belief. The ghost had reportedly turned to the workman and said, I don't like what you're doing to my studio. Then he vanished into the wall. Even after the renovations, much of Eintz's original studio remains as it was, and the sense of history here is very strong. Today, Culver Studios remains one of the busiest lots in town. Hopefully, Thomas Eintz's spirit can find a little peace in that. On the night of November 20, 1901, a young North Carolina woman named Nell Cropsey vanished from her family's home in Elizabeth City. After a frantic search that lasted more than a month, Nell's body was discovered floating in a nearby river. She had been brutally murdered, but by who? Her lover spent more than a dozen years in prison proclaiming his innocence before being pardoned by the governor. Did he kill Nell? And if not, then who did? And why did he commit suicide soon after getting out of prison? The story of Nell Cropsey remains one of the strange tales of murder in the state's history 
and perhaps the unanswered questions that still surround the case are the reason why Nell's ghost still haunts her family home today. Nell Maud Cropsey was born in July 1882. Her parents, William and his wife Mary Louise, lived in Brooklyn, New York, but in 1898 left the city for the southern community of Elizabeth City, North Carolina. They moved on to a 65-acre farm, and William became a judge in Pasquotank County. They happily settled into their new home, and Nell and her younger sister Olive became quite well-known in the area. They were both beautiful girls and had more than their share of suitors. Olive began a relationship with a man named Roy Crawford, while Nell was courted by Jim Wilcox, the son of the local sheriff. By 1901, they had been together nearly two years and were talking about marriage. On the evening of November 20th, both Roy and Jim visited the Cropsey home. The two couples spent the evening together, and around 11 p.m., Jim stood up and asked Nell to join him on the front porch to talk. Everyone else in the house, except for Olive and Roy, was asleep. A half hour passed, and Olive assumed that Nell had come back into the house and gone to bed. Roy Crawford left the house, seeing no one outside. When Olive went to the room that she shared with her sister, she saw that Nell was not in her bed. She assumed Nell was still with Jim and went to sleep. Around midnight, the Cropsey's dog suddenly began barking loudly. The entire household was awakened and went out onto the front porch to see the cause of the disturbance. There was no one there, but at that point Olive realized that Nell had never come to bed. Her sister was missing. Mrs. Cropsey was terrified, but her husband tried to calm her, suggesting that perhaps Nell and Jim had decided to elope. They had been talking about marriage, and it was not unusual for young couples to run off and get married, he told his wife. By morning, William Cropsey was not convinced that his daughter had run away. Nell had been excited about an upcoming trip to New York. None of her belongings were missing. Her clothing and suitcases were still in the closet. William was sure something was wrong. He went to the home of Sheriff Wilcox to ask questions. Jim had been the last one to see Nell that night. Perhaps he had some idea of where she might be. When he arrived, Jim was home but refused to come to the parlor and speak with Nell's father. Angry and alarmed, William went to see the chief of police. The authorities forced Jim Wilcox to return to the Cropsey home and they questioned him for hours. Despite pleas from Mary and Olive, Jim refused to tell them anything. All that he would say was that he had left Nell crying on the porch after a 10-minute conversation. He refused to say why the young woman was crying what the conversation was about, or where he had gone after he left the Cropsey home. A massive hunt for Nell Cropsey began. Law enforcement officers, volunteers, and trained bloodhounds combed the area, searching the forests and swamps. There was no sign of the missing girl. Rumors began to surface that painted an ugly picture of the relationship between Nell and Jim Wilcox. Friends told the police about terrible fights and Nell's fear of Jim's violent temper. They'd been fighting more than usual over the last couple of months, and Mary Cropsey told the police that Nell had recently confided that she planned to stop seeing Jim. Weeks passed with still no trace of the missing girl. Jim Wilcox still refused to talk to the police, and the Cropsey family began to fear the worst. Then, on December 27th, Nell's body was found floating in the Pasquotank River. The river had been searched many times without success, causing many to surmise that the killer had recently taken the girl's body from a hiding place and dumped it into the river. With no other suspects, Jim Wilcox was arrested. While in jail, death threats poured into the police station, promising that Jim would be lynched for his crime. To make matters worse, he still refused to account for his whereabouts in the house after Nell disappeared. The autopsy showed that Nell had been killed by a violent blow to the left temple. Jim's temper was said to be violent. Could an argument have turned deadly? Jim waived his right to a preliminary hearing and he went straight to trial. 
In March 1902, he was found guilty of first-degree murder and was sentenced to hang. Before he could go to the gallows, his case was declared a mistrial by the North Carolina Supreme Court. He was tried again for murder in 1903 and this time was found guilty of second-degree murder. He was sentenced to spend the next 30 years in prison. In 1918, though, Jim received a visit from Governor Thomas Walter Bickett. A short time later, he was pardoned and released. After Jim got out of prison, he met with famed newspaper editor W.O. Sanders, who was planning a book about the Cropsey case. Whatever Jim had to tell him was apparently so shocking that Saunders made immediate plans to start on the proposed book. But it was never to be. A short time after the meeting, Jim committed suicide with a shotgun blast to the head. Soon after, Saunders was killed in a car accident. Whatever Jim Wilcox told Saunders at that meeting will never be known. However, it's just one of the mysteries connected to this case. We will likely never know what happened to Nell Cropsey that night in 1901, and perhaps this is the reason why her spirit refuses to rest. For the past century, those who've lived in the former Cropsey home have reported strange occurrences. Lights go on and off, doors open and shut, water rushes from the sink even when no one turns the handle, and strange cold gusts of air waft through the house without explanation. Some reports also include sightings of a pale young woman who's been seen walking across empty rooms. People passing by on the street have seen the same pale figure looking wistfully from an upstairs window. One resident claimed to recognize Nell when she awoke and saw the murdered girl standing at the foot of her bed one night. Will the enduring mystery of Nell's death ever be solved? After all of these years, it seems unlikely, which means that the unfortunate young woman is just as unlikely to find the peace that she still seeks. Her lingering presence reminds us that she never truly received the justice that she deserved, and because she still walks, she is never forgotten. Her sad story is told over and over as we recall the tragic tale of her ghost. Dead men, or in a dead young woman, really do tell tales. On November 23, 1910, American-born homeopathic physician and salesman Holly Harvey Crippen, usually known simply as Dr. Crippen in crime annals, was hanged at Pentonville Prison in London for the murder of his wife Cora. He has the dubious distinction of being the first criminal to be captured with the aid of wireless communication. Crippen was born in Coldwater, Michigan in September 1862. He graduated from the Michigan School of Homeopathic Medicine in 1884. Crippen's first wife, Charlotte, died of a stroke in 1892, and Crippen entrusted his parents, living in California, with the care of his two-year-old son, Holly Otto. Having qualified as a homeopathic doctor, Crippen started to practice in New York, where, in 1894, he married his second wife, Corrine Cora Turner who used the stage name of Belle Elmore. She was a would-be music hall singer who openly had affairs with other men. Needless to say, their marriage was not a happy one. In 1894, Crippen started working for Dr. Munyans, a homeopathic pharmaceutical company, and three years later he and his wife moved to England. His American medical credentials were not sufficient to allow him to practice medicine in the UK and today wouldn't have allowed him to practice here either. So Crippens went to work as a distributor of patent medicines. Cora went back to work too and began socializing with a number of famous variety players of the time, including Lil Hawthorne of the Hawthorne Sisters and Lil's husband manager, John Nash. In 1899, Crippen lost his job with Munyans for spending too much time managing his wife's stage career. He became manager of Drought's Institution for the Deaf, 
where he met Ethel Lenev, a young typist, around 1903. No one knows when their affair began, but it is known that she was his mistress by 1905. In that year, the Crippens moved into a house on Camden Road and began taking in lodgers to supplement Crippen's income. After Cora started an affair with one of the lodgers, Crippen began sleeping with Ethel. After a party at their home on January 31, 1910, Cora disappeared. Holly Crippen claimed that she had returned to America and then later added that she had died and had been cremated in California. Meanwhile, his lover, Ethel, moved into the house on Camden Road and began openly wearing Cora's clothes and jewelry. Police first heard of Cora's disappearance from her friend, sideshow strongwoman Kate Williams, better known as Volcana, but began to take the matter more seriously when asked to investigate by personal friends of Scotland Yard Superintendent Frank Frost, John Nash, and his entertainer wife Lil Hawthorne. The Crippen house was searched, but nothing was found. Crippen was interviewed by Chief Inspector Walter Dew, and after the interview and a quick search of the house, Dew was satisfied. However, Crippen and Lenev didn't know that police suspicions had been relieved and fled in panic to Brussels, where they spent the night at a hotel. The following day, they went to Antwerp and boarded the Canadian Pacific liner SS Montrose for Canada. Their disappearance led the police at Scotland Yard to perform another three searches of the house. During the fourth and final search, they found the remains of a human body buried under the brick floor of the basement. Sir Bernard Spilsbury found traces of the calming drug scopolamine in the remains. The corpse was identified by a piece of skin from its abdomen. However, the head, limbs, and skeleton were never recovered. Meanwhile, Crippen and Lenev were crossing the Atlantic on the Montrose, with Lenev disguised as a boy. Captain Henry George Kendall recognized the fugitives, though, and just before steaming out of range of the land-based transmitters, had telegraphist Lawrence Ernst Hughes send a wireless telegram to the British authorities. Quote, "...have strong suspicions that Crippen London cellar murderer and accomplice are among saloon passengers. Mustache taken off, growing beard. Accomplice dressed as boy." manner and build undoubtedly a girl." Unquote. Had Crippen traveled third class, he would have probably escaped Kendall's notice. Dew boarded a faster White Star liner, the SS Laurentic, arrived in Quebec, Canada ahead of Crippen and contacted the Canadian authorities. As the Montrose entered the St. Lawrence River, Dew came aboard disguised as a pilot. Canada was then still a dominion within the British Empire. If Crippen, an American citizen, had sailed to the United States instead, even if he had been recognized, it would have taken extradition proceedings to bring him to trial. Kendall invited Crippens to meet the pilots as they came aboard. Dew removed his pilot's cap and said, "'Good morning, Dr. Crippen. Do you know me? I'm Chief Inspector Dew from Scotland Yard.'" After a pause, Crippen replied, "'Thank God it's over. The suspense has been too great. I couldn't stand it any longer.'" He then held out his wrists for the handcuffs. Crippen and Lenev were arrested on board the Montrose on July 31, 1910. Crippen was returned to England on board the SS Megantic. Crippen and Ethel were tried separately in London. Ethel was tried as an accessory and was later acquitted, but Crippen would not be so lucky, no matter how strange the trial turned out to be. The pathologists appearing for the prosecution including Bernard Spilsbury, could not identify the remains or even discern whether they were male or female. However, Spilsbury found a piece of skin with what he claimed to be an abdominal scar consistent with Cora's medical history. Large quantities of the toxic compound hyoscine were found in the remains, and Crippen had bought the drug before the murder from a local chemist. Crippen's defense maintained that Cora had fled to America with another man named Bruce Miller. They also said that Cora and Crippen had only been living in the house since 1905, suggesting a previous owner of the house was responsible for the placement of the remains. The defense also asserted that the abdominal scar identified by pathologist Spilsbury was really just folded tissue, for it, among other things, had hair follicles growing from it 
something scar tissue could not have. Other evidence presented by the prosecution included a piece of a man's pajama top, supposedly from a pair Cora had given Crippen a year earlier. The pajama bottoms were found in Crippen's bedroom, but not the top. The fragment included the manufacturer's label, Jones Brothers. Curlers with bleached hair consistent with Cora's, both were found with the remains. Throughout the proceedings and his sentencing, Crippen showed no remorse for his wife and concern for only his lover's reputation. After 27 minutes of deliberations, the jury found Crippen guilty of murder. He was hanged at 9 a.m. November 23, 1910. At his request, a photograph of Ethel Lenev was placed in his coffin with him. Crippen was dead. But the story doesn't end there. Many doubts remain as to whether or not Crippen truly murdered his wife. The novelist Raymond Chandler commented that it seemed unbelievable that Crippen would successfully dispose of his wife's limbs and head and then, rather stupidly, bury her torso under the cellar floor of his home. In October 2007, Michigan State University forensic scientist David Foran claimed that mitochondrial DNA evidence showed that the remains found beneath the cellar floor in Crippen's home were not those of Cora Crippen. This research was based on genealogical identification of three matrilineal relatives of Cora Crippen, great nieces located by U.S. genealogist Beth Wills, whose mitochondrial DNA haplotype was compared with DNA extracted from a slide with flesh taken from the torso in Crippen's cellar, carefully preserved in a London hospital museum. This has raised new questions about the actual identity of the remains found in the cellar and, by extension, over Crippen's guilt. One theory is that Crippen may have been carrying out illegal abortions. It may be that one of his patients died and that he disposed of the body in the way he was accused of disposing of his wife. However, the remains were also tested for sex at Michigan State, using a highly sensitive assay of the Y chromosome. On this basis, the researchers found that the body parts were those of a man. The research team also argued that a scar on the abdomen of the body, which the Crown prosecution interpreted as a scar consistent with one Mrs. Crippen was known to have, convincing the jury that the remains were Mrs. Crippen's, was incorrectly identified due to the tissues having hair follicles whereas scars do not, a point which Dr. Crippen's defense argued at the time. These recent arguments for Crippen's innocence have been disputed by some commentators, although in no instance has it been disputed by actual scientists. It has been argued that the DNA sample could have been tainted or mislabeled, or alternatively that the alleged relatives were not actually blood relatives of Mrs. Crippen. However, the research has since been published in the January 2011 issue of the premier journal of forensic sciences, following careful peer review by highly qualified forensic scientists. Numerous requests have been made for samples of the blonde hair found at the scene and now preserved in New Scotland Yard's museum to conduct DNA testing to see if they are Cora's. Obtaining a DNA sample from these sources would greatly lessen any questions of contamination. New Scotland Yard has repeatedly denied this request. However, New Scotland Yard was willing to test a hair from the crime scene for a fee, which in turn was rejected by the investigators as over the top, making this an option which is still open if New Scotland Yard continues to extend the offer. Some have suggested that the police planted the body parts and particularly the fragment of the pajama top at the scene to incriminate Crippen. Others' suggested motive is that Scotland Yard was under tremendous public pressure to find and bring to trial a suspect for this heinous crime, but it should be noted that the case did not become public until after the remains were found. Was Dr. Crippen guilty? It may not matter. In December 2009, the Criminal Cases Review Commission, having reviewed the case, declared that the Court of Appeal will not hear the case to pardon Crippen posthumously. While the holidays are usually a time of cheer and happiness, 
the people of Chicago learned of a Christmas-related tragedy on November 22, 1912, when the Rouse Simmons, the famed Christmas tree ship, went down in a storm on Lake Michigan. The tragedy changed the face of the holiday for the people of Chicago in a very unexpected way. For many years, one of the great traditions of Chicago was the arrival of the famous Christmas tree ship. Starting in 1887, Captain Herman Schooneman and his brother August began returning with bundles of their fragrant cargo. Schooneman sold Christmas trees and handmade wreaths from his mooring on the Chicago River near the Clark Street Bridge. The tallest trees drawn from the shipment were presented to the grateful owners of downtown theaters and, in return, the brothers received complimentary season passes. The rest were sold to celebrating citizens, many of whom spoke of their fond memories of the Schoenemans and the Rouse Simmons, their Christmas tree ship, for generations. By 1912, Chicagoans anxiously looked forward to the ship's arrival and anticipated searching for the perfect tree among the wares, which ranged in price from 75 cents to a dollar. Herman affixed a hand-painted sign to the dock each year reminding his customers that he had ventured into the deep snows of the Upper Peninsula to hand-pick just the right trees for his fine friends back in Chicago. Herman Schooneman, the master of the Rouse Simmons, his wife, and three young daughters lived in a small apartment at 1638 North Clark Street, just a little over a mile north of the river. His oldest daughter, Elsie, was devoted to her father and had recently become active in the family's seasonal business. It was a business that was not without risk. The month of November, when the shipment of trees had to be sailed across the Great Lakes, was a particularly treacherous one for Lake Michigan. High winds and deadly gales had sent many ships to the bottom of Lake Michigan, and in 1898, Captain Schooneman's brother, August, went down with all hands while manning the schooner S. Thal in the waters off north suburban Glencoe. But his brother's death and the threat of more dangerous weather failed to deter Herman Schooneman. He knew the Rouse Simmons was a sturdy ship. Built in 1868, the wooden schooner was fitted with three masts and had been intended for use in the lumber industry. Its large hold made it perfect for storing hundreds of Christmas trees each season. On November 22, 1912, Captain Schooneman, with a crew and passenger list of 16, and between 27,000 and 50,000 trees tied and bundled below decks, set sail from Manistique, Michigan, bound for Chicago. The skies were overcast and high winds were predicted, but the Rouse Simmons headed straight into the open waters of the lake. When a storm broke, the wooden ship was hopelessly trapped, far from shore. The ship foundered in the rough waters and eventually the sails blew out and the ice-covered masts collapsed. A short time later, the Rouse Simmons disappeared. Captain Herman Schooneman was never heard from again, although many of his trees were found washed ashore in Wisconsin a few days after the ship vanished. The people of Chicago and the family of Captain Schooneman were grief-stricken and stunned. Newspaper reporters found Elsie Schooneman and her mother weaving Christmas garlands that came from the splintered trees recovered by Wisconsin residents on the lake's shoreline. Facing destitution, they sold the garlands to the public. Every dollar the family possessed had been tied up in the Rouse Simmons and its ill-fated cargo. The Chicago Inter-Ocean Newspaper, with help from the Lake Siemens Union, organized an emergency relief fund for the family. Elsie told the newspaper reporters, I'm going to attempt to carry on Father's Christmas tree business. I will get friends to help me and send trees by rail to Chicago and sell them from the foot of Clark Street. Ever since I was a little girl, Papa has sold them there, and lots and lots of people never think of going anywhere else for their trees. As a sales location for the trees, W.C. Holmes Shipping, for whom Schooneman had operated a vessel in his younger days, offered the family the use of a schooner, the Oneida. It was moored at the Clark Street Bridge where the Rouse Simmons had rested for years, and after the Rouse Simmons disaster, the new ship was filled with trees each year and the cherished Christmas tradition was unbroken. Meanwhile, in 1912, the search for clues and survivors from the Rouse Simmons continued. The U.S. Treasury Department offered the use of one of their cutters to search the small islands of Lake Michigan for any sign of the small ship. 
The hopes and prayers of the families of the crew and passengers went with the cutter, but those hopes quickly faded. No sign of the men were found, but two bottle messages were reportedly recovered. The first was found on a beach at Sheboygan, Wisconsin on December 13, 1912. It read, Friday, everybody goodbye. I guess we are all through. Sea washed over our deck load Tuesday. During the night, the small boat washed over. Ingvald and Steve fell overboard on Thursday. God help us. Herman Schunemann. Ingvald Newhouse was a deckhand taken on board just before sailing, and Stephen Nelson was the first mate and son of Captain Charles Nelson, who was also lost. The second bottle note, this one written by Captain Nelson, was found years later in 1927. It read, These lines were written at 10.30 p.m., Scooter RS ready to go down about 20 miles southeast of Two Rivers Point, between 15 and 20 miles offshore. All hands lashed to one line. Goodbye. From time to time, other curious artifacts, including a human skull believed to have come from the Christmas tree ship, were washed up along beaches or snagged in fishermen's nets. On April 23, 1924, Captain Schuneman's wallet, containing business cards and newspaper clippings, was recovered at Two Rivers Point. But the final location of the Rouse Simmons remained a mystery until October 1971. A diver named G. Kent Bellrichard of Milwaukee found the remarkably preserved wreck under 180 feet of water off the coast of Two Rivers. As to the fate of the rest of the Schunemann family, Elsie made good on her promise to continue the tradition of the Christmas tree ship. They maintained the tree lot at the Clark Street Bridge every holiday season until 1933, bringing happiness to thousands of Chicago families every year. If you're new here, please consider subscribing to the podcast so you don't miss future episodes, and share a link to the podcast on your own social media to invite your friends and family to subscribe as well. And also a big thanks to everyone who has posted reviews this week about the podcast on iTunes. If you'd like to become an official weirdo, you can support the show for as little as $1 per month. Find out how at WeirdDarkness.com or visit Patreon.com slash MarlarHouse. By the way, every year as we enter the holiday season, I choose a charity to support and raise money for through the podcast. This year I've chosen Food for the Poor, and all money that comes in this month, November 2017, through Patreon and the Marler House store is being donated directly to them. You can learn more about Food for the Poor by clicking on the Give Life banner at WeirdDarkness.com. You can visit my Patreon or the Marler House store at WeirdDarkness.com as well. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Again, if you like the show, please post a rating and review on iTunes. All stories from this episode were written by Troy Taylor and are purported to be true. You can find links to all of the stories in the show notes. Music in this episode is provided by Shadows Symphony. You can find them online at Facebook.com slash Shadows Symphony. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the weird darkness. Weird darkness.